0: Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. We've read this many times, and you, if you didn't already, you might already have this memorized by now. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, longsuffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh, with its passions and desires. Remember that verse. It's very relevant, especially for today. And those who are Christ's, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Another. So today, we will finish the fruit of the Spirit. The last of those fruit is self-control. We will study self-control here tonight. Let's pray. God, I thank you, Lord, for your work in our lives, that none of us have power in our own selves. We don't have enough strength and might in our own will to overcome the passions and desires and lusts of the flesh. It's a supernatural work of your Spirit in our lives. That's the only way that we can walk in this fruit of the Spirit. So I pray that you would help us to receive in this last fruit. You would help us to receive your will for our lives to walk and to cultivate these things which you have given to us and allow you to freely move in our lives. God, bless your people, every person that is listening, every person that is watching. I pray that you have blessed them in a special way with your grace and with your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I recently learned a new word this week. I recently learned a new word that is now in existence that didn't exist just a few years ago. That word is nomophobia. Okay? N-O-M-O, phobia. Nomophobia. And it is a term that has been coined by our culture out of necessity in order to define... What is a fear of not having your mobile phone? No-mo-phobia. You get it? There, there are individuals, and they're actually, they're actually calling it a phobia. It's, it's not in the book of disorders, whatever that book that is, a phobias, But I'm sure it very soon will be. Um, a legitimate phobia, the fear of not having your cell phone, close or nearby, and having some sort of detachment anxiety in association with not having your cell phone. And, and just to back this up and the seriousness of this, there's a few stats that I read. The average smartphone owner unlocks their phone 150 times a day. I think I also read somewhere where on average, a person may touch their cell phone nearly 2,000 times per day, actually touch it. 66% of the population shows signs of nomophobia. 71% of people usually sleep with or next to their mobile phone. 80% of smartphone users check their phone within one hour after waking. 62% do, do that immediately after waking up. The first thing they do is grab that cell phone and check whatever. of people, listen to this, 20% of people would rather go without shoes for a week than take a break from their phone. And science has proven, especially in younger developing brains, that using a smartphone for longer intervals, it actually changes brain chemistry and smartphone use and depression are correlated. And it's actually a scientific study that's occurring, especially on young people. Consider this statistic. When it comes to pornography, over 28,000 users are watching porn every single second. $3,075 is spent on porn every second. One in five mobile phone searches are for pornography. Pornography. Consider these statistics yet even more. In 2017, 19.7 million American adults battled a substance abuse problem. And in 2018, 14.4 million adults battled alcoholism. And the reason I bring these things up and share these statistics is to merely highlight the fact that we all know, and maybe even it's a reality in some people's lives who are listening. The reality that so many people are engaged in behavior which is harmful to themselves and even to others, and yet they cannot help but do that behavior. They cannot help but to partake of that behavior. And this is, as we understand as Christians and what the Word of God tells us, this is because the individual without Christ, if Christ is not your master, Then the world of flesh and the devil is your master. And without Christ, you are a slave to your flesh, to the passions and desires of your flesh. And you are a slave to sin. And the slavery to your sin, a slavery to your flesh, it manifests itself in the works of the flesh. Which is what is immediately preceding the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Which are completely contradictory to the life of a Christian. The works of the flesh are. The works of the flesh that Paul describes, those are things that dominate the life of an unbeliever. Now, all those works of the flesh may not be uh, manifesting in every single sinner's life, but the sinner's life, his life is dominated by sin because he is not under the lordship of the Holy Spirit, the lordship of Jesus Christ. But we as Christians, what a wonderful benefit we have that born of the Spirit of God, we are no longer slaves of sin. We're no longer slaves of this world, of the devil, of our carnal appetites, and our sensual desires. The Spirit's control and influence in our lives, He enables us to die to the desires of our flesh and live unto the righteousness of God. And the Holy Spirit produces this self-control this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, he produces this self-control in our lives as a means of combating our carnal, sinful nature and any other harmful propensities that we may indulge in that would bring a hindrance and harm to our life. Strong's Concordance, it it defines self-control as this. Now, the King James says temperance. It says temperance. It's not a word that we use very often today, but it, is, it means self-control. The ver- it is the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. That's what the Strong says. So it is a self-command. It is a person who is able to govern their self, and they are not governed by the flesh, their emotions, their appetites. Uh, D.G. Kell puts it this way. The ability to avoid excesses, to stay within reasonable bounds. To stay within reasonable bounds. The ability to master one's desires and passions, especially your sensual appetites. And if we were to remind ourselves of each of the fruit of the Spirit, each of the fruit of the Spirit um, um, relates directly in opposition to all the previously listed works of the flesh. So if you took these nine fruit of the Spirit, which, of course, is not all comprehensive, but it does directly oppose all of the various works of the flesh that Paul had previously described. So you could say love is opposed to hatred. Joy is opposed to jealousy and envy. Peace is opposed to contentions, selfish ambitions, and dissensions. Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and meekness are opposed to outbursts of wrath and murder. Faithfulness would be opposed to idolatry, witchcraft, and heresies. And then self-control would be opposed to adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, drunkenness, and revelries. And these works of the flesh, one thing they all have in common is that there is a lack of restraint in association with those works of the flesh. Now, we know it's a lack of restraint that causes all works of the flesh. But when you look at those specific ones, it's an absolute lack of restraint of the flesh. It is all restraint has been cast off when you relate to those particular works of the flesh. Now, it should be noted, it should be noted that self-control is not merely the denial of indulgence. Okay, you have to understand this very, very closely because you can misunderstand what this is. It is not just merely the denial of self-indulgence, okay, to any improper desire or inclination we may feel. But it is a self-control. Self-control is the healthy regulation of our desires and appetites themselves preventing their excesses. In the first place, it would be easy to see that it may be the result of virtue or not, but the other, the second definition or the clarification of self-control, that would be considered a virtue in itself. Let me explain what I just said. Okay, Let me explain with a few examples. A thief who abstains from intoxication, a thief who has the self-control to not get drunk only so that he can more aptly and skillfully commit crimes, or an MMA fighter who denies himself certain indulgences while he's training to enter into the octagon, or someone who refrains from certain behavior because they fear um, disgrace or embarrassment by society, those can hardly be called virtuous. Because it's merely this. Even, those, those, even though those individuals are exerting self-command or self-control over one bad indulgence, they are merely, it is merely one selfish principle overcoming another one that is weaker. Okay? So there's a difference. So it's not that you are having self-control over uh, drunkenness that is a virtue, because you're selflessly not trying to get drunk so that you can go commit crimes and all the other examples that I gave. But the spirit-led individual who learns to control his desires themselves and keep them within proper limits. This is what we're speaking of for self-control. Because he considers a particular inclination of the flesh as sinful, that is what is virtuous. It is not for... Um, preservation of your own dignity or reputation it is a desire it is a desire not to partake of sinful behavior because you love God and you want to please Him and glorify him. It is, it is the, the, the control of the Holy Spirit in your life that keeps you from partaking of that sinful activity and it's not merely the overt uh, lack of indulgence on the in, on the outside. You may be able to tame some things on the outside, but have you tamed your heart? Have you tamed your will? The one is abstinence from an overt act, the other is purification of the heart. So I hope you see those differences. The one might yield to fleshly appetites if it could be done safely or without consequences, but the spirit led individual maintains an unshaken firmness because of the spirit's work from the inside out. Before I get into a few points of application here, some practical application, I also want you to understand this. We understand that self-control is a way in which we combat the passions and desires of our flesh, of our sensual nature, uh, uh, of our appetites, of our carnal nature. We understand that, that self-control is a means to combat that. But, but I want you to understand that as long as you are living on this earth, you will always experience temptation. You just will. As long as you're living on this earth, and not until you stand in the presence of God, where body, mind, and soul are all completely perfected, not until you stand in the presence of God, you will always have to contend with the temptations of the carnal nature. And so we must subdue and control these impulses of the flesh by the help of God and not merely seek the annihilation of the natural qualities from which they arise. And, I, and let me explain. So in order to overcome lust, it's not by becoming a eunuch. It's not the annihilation of the human experience necessarily. It is, it is not um, completely trying to remove all these you remove yourself from the natural temptations of life. It is, you don't fix lust by becoming a eunuch. It is the eradication of these tendencies as possible and not promise in this life, even by the grace of God, which should teach us to resist temptation here, encouraged by the blessed hope that a better life where our bodies will be glorified when we're in the presence of Jesus Christ. And all I'm trying to say there is, you are going to have to contend against The temptations of your flesh, not as a victim, not as one who has been subdued by your flesh, the world and the devil, but you will have to heed the warnings of Scripture, be diligent because the the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking to devour your life, seeking to devour your children's life. And you have to understand that if Jesus was tempted throughout the course of his life, so will you also be tempted and that will never be annihilated, if you will, completely in this life. You will have to contend against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I also want to clarify this, that self-control is not self-will. It is not a, a virtuous act of the self-will. It's not you trying harder or trying to do better in your own strength and own power of your own might. It is not trying your hardest and doing your best to overcome the works or the temptations of the flesh. We overcome by the Holy Spirit's work and enabling power as we surrender our weakness and our frailties and our shortcomings to Him. So it is not an act of the will, but is a surrender of the will to the dominance of the Spirit in our life. And as you yield, And as you present your bodies as members of righteousness and consider yourself dead to sin, the influence and control of this Holy Spirit takes root in your life and helps to govern yourself in light of immense temptation around you. So let me make a practical application with this aspect or this fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. Self-control can be applied in two areas. Okay, it is necessary, self-control is necessary for the denial, the absolute denial of carnal appetites. And then self-control is also necessary for the regulated use of what might be even good things. So self-control, in one aspect, it means the total abstinence or denial of carnal or sensual appetites of our flesh are also self-control is necessary for the proper proper regulation or moderation of the use of what may even be good things or even neutrally moral things. So number one, self-control over the denial of carnal appetites. And as I said earlier, we'll, we will never be removed from temptation in this life as long as we are here. does not mean we are dominated by temptation. We're not dominated by sin, but we will have to... Uh, continue to fight against the world, the flesh, the devil. And James makes this very, very clear. He makes it very clear speaking to believers in chapter 1. He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Meaning you have the ability by God's power to endure, that is to overcome temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Those who love Him. You're motivated by love. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. But each one, each person, is each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, it gives birth or brings forth death. He goes on to say, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. For of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, and that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures." What is his intended purpose for us? That we might be a kind of first fruits. That's a hail back to the Old Testament. What were first fruits? It was a consecration of what God has given into your hands. It was a consecration of the first fruits and consecrating it as holy unto the Lord. His desire is to make us a holy people. We are holy people by the virtue of Christ's blood, judicially, and he wants to continually cleanse us and encourage us, and make us like Jesus. And as we face temptation, He has given us everything to overcome temptation so that we do not have to indulge in the temptations of the flesh. But the, the source of you falling into temptation, it is your flesh. It's your own desires. You're enticed by your own desires. And it conceives and gives birth to sin, sin which eventually gives birth or gives forth to death. So we have to be reminded of the threat that is continually there and how sin or the temptation to sin is ever present in our lives. Also, we must remember that God helps us escape our temptation. Remember, what I'm talking about is self-control helping us to deny the carnal appetites and desires to sin. So God helps us escape our temptation in that moment to lose all restraint, to, to allow your anger to, to go into a fit of rage, to allow yourself to click on that link on your phone, to, to allow yourself to give in to whatever it is, whatever it is, big or small, whatever it is. God has, has made everything available to you to give you the means of overcome that, the overcoming that temptation in that moment. First Corinthians 10.12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, meaning be diligent, be vigilant. Don't think you got it all figured out, and you're you're um, not vulnerable to the temptations around you. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to men. Meaning, whatever temptation you're experiencing is not unique to you. Every person is being tempted around you, but God is faithful. Not you are faithful. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. That word bear it, it means to endure without yielding. And listen, as you yield to the Spirit's power and influence of your life, it enables you to bear temptation. That is, so that you do not yield to that temptation. I was just watching a video this week. If you haven't noticed in the headlines, there are supposedly these massive Asian hornets that have made their way to America. And it's a big news headline and and a bunch of clickbait, I think. But I was researching these hornets. They're like two inches long, they're massive hornets. And hornets are the arch enemy of bees. And I I was watching a video recently, how that hornets, when they attack European honeybees, these European honeybees, they have no defense against the hornets, any kind of hornet. They have absolutely no defense. But if you looked at a Japanese honeybee, they have found a defense against this hornet, which is much bigger than itself. Okay? They, don't, they don't sting the hornet, but almost on cue as communicating to one another, when the scout hornet makes its way into the hive in order to send the rest of the hornets to go completely destroy, on cue, all of these Japanese honeybees, they swarm this, this hornet and completely encapsulate the hornet with thousands or hundreds of these, the bodies of these honeybees, and they don't sting, but they begin to vibrate their bodies to the point that they raise their body temperature so high, they raise their body temperature to 117 degrees, 117 degrees. And it's interesting, they said the honeybee, the threshold of that honeybee is 118 degrees. So just within one degree, they're able to bring their body temperature all the way to their maximum threshold that they can experience by by using this method. And do you know what the threshold of this hornet is? 115 degrees. And just by increasing the body temperature of this hornet 2 more degrees than it can withstand and just 1 degree less 1 degree less than what the bees can withstand this heat it actually cooks the hornet and kills the hornet. And here's what I want to say. The fury of temptation And the attacks of the enemy on your flesh may seem so insurmountable and huge. And compared to you, it is. But the Holy Spirit, and because God is faithful, He will never let you be tempted beyond what you can withstand. He will take you all the way to your 117 degree mark and not allow you to break, not allow you to give in. And when He allows you to give you that endurance, and to withstand that attack, the, the means and the wiles of the devil are destroyed and the Spirit of God is greater than the attacks of the enemy and the Spirit of God is greater than the desires of the flesh. The one who is yielded to the Holy Spirit, His authority and dominance in your life is far greater than the works of the flesh and the works and attacks of the devil. Where you may feel like you're going to break, he will take you to that threshold and always give you a, a means of escape. Will always give you a means of escape. Just, like, just when you think you can't make it, he gives you grace, he gives you power, he gives you means to overcome the temptation at hand. Why? Because we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And we have a high priest we can call upon, and we have the Spirit dwelling within that empowers us to overcome. So God will always give you means of escape. You don't have to give in. You don't have to give in. You can, by God's power, be an overcomer. You are an overcomer in Christ. It does take a certain self-discipline, though. It does take a certain self-discipline on our part. And Paul said that concerning his own self. Paul said, I buffet my body. I discipline myself. He said in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or exhibits self-control in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. That word there, I put it down. I put it under. I crucify the flesh. What did we read in Galatians? But those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I bring my life in subjection to the Holy Spirit. I discipline my body, Paul said. Paul said this, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. In Brother B.H. Clendenin's famous message, Soldiers, there's one little line he says in there that, that I've never forgotten. Many things I haven't forgotten from that sermon. But he says, the difference between an army and a mob is discipline. The difference between an army and a mob is discipline. An army is a well-trained army who knows how to submit to authority. A mob is every person doing what they want and going crazy. But the difference between the two, it is discipline. It's discipline. And so let me carry over to the next point of application, but not until my my last point I'd like to make in regards to the denial of our carnal appetites. As I mentioned earlier, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. And because we have died with Christ and we've been raised to new life in the same that he was resurrected, reckon our, we should reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and dead to our carnal nature in our past life. And Paul says in Romans chapter six, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you, you should obey it in its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. You have the power through the grace of God to come before Him, allow Him, allow Him to humble you as you humble yourself, and allow Him to encourage you and strengthen you as you present yourself as a living sacrifice before the Lord. You present yourself You present your members as slaves of righteousness and he makes you an overcomer because you are not under law, you are under grace. And so the principle here is this, to conclude this point. It is this, as a believer, the Spirit of God empowers me to overcome. He gives me self-control, self-discipline to overcome the desire to overindulge or the desire to sin. I do not have to give in by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number two, and the necessity of self-control and its application in our lives, it can also apply to the regulated use of good things. The regulated, the self-disciplined use of even good things. If any of you have ever had a low tire, or maybe even a, a flat tire, you walk outside and your tire's low, if you have an air compressor at your house, you plug it in, and the motor turns on, and it starts sucking air into the cylinder or the, the or pancakes uh, uh, air compressor. It starts to suck air into the cylinder and it begins to pressurize all this air inside of the compressor. It compresses the air, it puts it under high pressure. But what is, very, what is a very important element of a compressor is a pressure regulator. So if you look on, uh, usually at the nozzle, uh, there's a little dial that shows you the pressure that's in it. And there's a mechanism called a regulator that once it reaches the upper threshold of its limits of what that cylinder can take when it comes to pressure, it will cut off the motor and not allow any more air to come inside and be pressurized. Because otherwise, if there was no regulator that stopped the motor from occurring, more and more air would come into that cylinder and eventually blow up that hunk of metal. It's the right amount of air which is good, but too much air is bad. It is the regulation of the amount that is used. And so there are many good things in life that we can give ourselves to, partake of. There's even morally neutral things that we have activities and partake of. And there are even things that are necessary for existence that we partake of. But a lot of these things in life, if they are not used within their proper limits, if they're not regulated in such a way, they can become a hindrance and even an enslavement in your life. So without self-control, a good thing can become a bad thing. Without self-control, without self-restraint, a good thing can become a bad thing. Let me just explain to you. i got a few examples here. What about your emotions? Have you ever heard this? Emotions make great servants but terrible masters. Imagine if you were governed by your emotions every day, all day. Sometimes we have emotions and we don't even know why. Sometimes you may feel sad or happy or you may get angry. Imagine If you are governed solely by your emotions, emotions are a good thing. Within the proper application, sadness and anger and happiness and even sorrow, these are good things. These are natural to the human experience. But imagine if those things are out of control and they completely govern your being, govern your person. So we do not live by feelings, but we live by faith. So regardless of even our emotions, which are good and beneficial within uh, reason, ultimately we must be governed by the Spirit of God, which gives us eyes of faith. So regardless of our circumstance, regardless of the sorrow or the anger, the Holy Spirit places restraint and governance in our lives, and we are not governed by these emotions or feelings which may come and go from moment to moment. And so while emotions make great servants, it's a terrible master. And the only master we ought to have is Jesus Christ, who governs our life. What about entertainment? Entertainment in itself is not bad. Entertainment in itself is not bad. Entertainment it simply means to hold the attention, to divert, or amuse. You could also throw in this example also relaxation. Sometimes people relax by doing some things that are entertaining. Um, but while a little entertainment is okay, okay, just to decompress from the day and, I don't know, play word with friends on your phone or, or watch, watch a funny cat video on YouTube. Is there anything morally wrong with that? No, absolutely not. Get a good laugh from it. Um, to, to watch a little bit of, of wholesome TV. Andy Griffith Show. I love Andy Griffith. It's awesome. Um, whatever the means of entertainment may be, you have to understand, though, what entertainment is. It, it is it's, it's a means to divert or to amuse you. It turns off your brain. It's, it's a release from the things around you. And it's, a lot of times, it's an escape from reality, though. A lot of times, that's what entertainment becomes. And so you have to be careful. But social media, Netflix, TV, movies, video games, all these things, okay, If the content is morally wholesome and pleasing to God, just simply doing those things is not morally wrong. But but the capacity to binge on Netflix is a real possibility, isn't it? And before Netflix, we didn't even have the term binge watching. But now you can constantly watch whatever you want by streaming or by videos on YouTube or on your smartphone. And so, not just the content matters, but the amount of time spent with entertainment. It can become a master in your life. There are people with nomophobia. They've got... They've they've got an addiction to Facebook, an addiction to Instagram, an addiction to likes, an addiction to Netflix, an addiction to a TV series, and they cannot go without it. And they will binge watch hours on end, hours on end, and give themselves to things that are absolutely mindless. Am I saying it's a sin to watch Netflix? No, that's not what I'm saying. Am I saying it's a sin to watch TV? No, what I'm saying is you can give yourself over to it in an inordinate amount to where you become a slave to it, a slave to it. That's what matters, the amount of time given to it and the amount of mastery that you allow it to have over your life. Too much entertainment and relaxation, it really turns into laziness and unproductivity. Too much of that is what it leads to. And due to our too much entertainment in our culture, I would say that we are overly stimulated and yet still under-informed and still discontent. We are saturated with an immense amount of entertainment and ways to turn your brain off and escape from reality. But it does nothing for the human soul and spirit to encourage you in God. Okay, it's okay in moderation, regulated to the point that it does not master you and you don't give all the time to it because the, the, the principle for the Christian life should always be redeem the time, make the most of the time you have here. And so would it be more beneficial to spend an hour in prayer or to read the Word of God or two hours on Netflix, one hour on Netflix, whatever it is, the, the answer is very, very obvious. So what should, what should hold is endeavor to redeem the time and to become no slave to anything, including entertainment. A little bit of entertainment is okay, but it can become a hindrance in your life. What about hobbies? I love golf. Golf can, can become an idol. Gaming, fishing, gardening, boating, whatever it is, whatever the hobby is, it's wonderful. We're supposed to enjoy life. We're supposed to enjoy the earth that the Lord has given us and enjoy nature and enjoy God's creation enjoy our family, enjoy the beach, enjoy whatever it is. Enjoy your hobbies. That's a wonderful thing. But do all things unto, as unto glory to God and allow no thing to take you away from the time that should be spent with the Lord. Allow yourself to become no slave to it. How about self-control over food? Food is a good thing. We need it to live. You cannot exist unless you put nourishment into your body. But there is a sin which sometimes we often look over, which is called gluttony. And simply put, gluttony is excessive eating. It is overindulging with food to the point that you are eating something that you do not need. And your body is craving food so much that you cannot deny the craving and you overeat. It's a sin. Gluttony is a sin because you are being dominated by that, that, that physical appetite. Is a, appet- a, hunger, a, a, a hunger appetite, is that sinful? No. But are you if you're dominated by that appetite, then it becomes sinful to the point of excessive eating. Gluttony is a sin. And so you also, think about this, you don't have to be obese to be gluttonous. There's a lot of of skinny gluttons. You don't have to be obese to be a glutton. And so we should regulate the use of food to the point that there's a self-control there. There's a self-control. For instance, children lack a great deal of self-control, don't they? You give them a bag full of candy, they're gonna eat every single piece, guaranteed. Unless they're a weird child who doesn't like sugar, And chocolate, they're going to eat every single piece. Have you ever had to tell your child to stop eating their carrots and to eat their chocolate? No, it's always opposite. They're going to want to indulge in that thing which is pleasing to the body. And you overindulge to the point of hindrance in your life. And that is gluttony when it comes to food. It could be any substance, for that matter. Any substance. Ephesians 5.18, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, that is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. I hate alcohol. I won't touch it. There's a, there's a long-running debate in the church as to what is permissible when it comes to alcohol. I don't want to touch the stuff. It's like playing with fire. And, and, and although you could have, let's say, one beer and not get drunk, why would you play with fire? Why would you play with poison? Something that has destroyed so many people's lives. Why would I even open myself up to the temptation of abusing that thing. But notice the juxtaposition that Paul uses in Ephesians 5.18. He says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but on the contrary, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be being filled. Be controlled by the Spirit of God and no other substance, alcohol or anything else. Be controlled and governed by the Spirit of God. Be filled. Be baptized to overflowing with the holy spirit that you're governed and controlled by him and nothing else shall dominate you that's what he's saying and while drugs or alcohol can become mind altering it could be any dependence on anything which could result or be a result of a lack of self control what about what about an addiction to caffeine what about an addiction to nicotine what about an addiction to sugar what about an addiction to what was meant to be a help, which was painkillers, and now you're addicted to them? It, it could be things that, that on their face ha, are good, and there's nothing wrong with it. But if you become dependent upon it, you've become a slave to it. You've become a slave to it. Does it mean if you're addicted to sugar that you're lost and you reprobate? No. It just means you need to yield that to the Lord, give it to Him. He'll give you power and strength over that thing. And sugar, and by, by the way, sugar addiction is a real thing. That's why sugar is in everything. It's in everything. Sugar is in everything. It's even in the salads when you go to the fast food restaurants. It's in everything because people are addicted to sugar or caffeine. And so I shall not be dominated by anything except the Spirit of God. That's the prevailing theme here, okay? This is not to condemn anybody who may struggle with any aspect here, it's not condemning. It just means we need to continually yield up, yield up all aspects of our life and allow the Holy Spirit to really take control in our lives. And this is is where self-control comes into our, our lives. And God is patient with us and gracious with us. What about sleep? Everybody needs sleep. What about too much sleep? A proper regulated usage or moderation of sleep, that's a good thing. But what about too much sleep? Here's what Proverbs 20.13 says, Do not love excessive sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with bread. There are some people, they spend way too much time in bed sleeping, (laughs) and they've become lazy. And so a moderated amount, a proper amount of sleep is good. Too much sleep is bad. What about, lastly, let me end right here. What about your spending habits? What about your self-control or lack thereof when it comes to the usage of your money, okay? The average American household is in more debt than it's ever been. Consumer debt, debt when it comes to homes, houses, material things, toys, it's as high as it's ever been. It's because people, they have a high balance limit on their credit cards and they just swipe, 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 swipe with no moderation. And here's the the, the godly spiritual principle that we have to apply to our money. If the money that we have is from God, it's his to begin with. Everything we have, he's given to us. It's a blessing from him. If everything we have has been given to us merely as stewards of what is already his, then wouldn't it follow that we should be responsible users of that thing he's put into our hand? that we would be good stewards of that thing and would not impulsively waste what He has put into our hands in order to be edifying. So the principle is this, I will not be ruled by anything except the Spirit of God. And I like what D.J. Kell said once again, true spiritual self-control or self-discipline holds believers in bounds, but never in bonds. That's religion. But self-control, is true, Self-control flowing from the Holy Spirit, it never leaves believers in bonds, but it keeps you in bounds, within limits. Its effect is to enlarge, expand, and liberate. True freedom is the ability not to be controlled by your flesh and carnal appetites. That's what self-control brings into your life, a joy to serve the Lord and to walk in his statutes, to obey him. That's true freedom. And self-control allows you to walk within the bounds that that God has presented to us and not to be bound by some sort of rules or regulations. It brings true freedom. It brings true expanse and liberation into our lives. So so to summarize, I'm done. To summarize, self-control. Self-control is a mastery of the soul of the will and not merely the abstinence of overt uh, actions. It is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives enabling us to overcome the impulses of the flesh and the temptation to sin. It is the control of the Holy Spirit in our lives enabling us to regulate the usage of all things. Self-control, it is accomplished by the Holy Spirit as we continually present and yield our bodies to the Holy Spirit's influence in our lives. And lastly, self-control. Our motivation for self-control is our love for Jesus Christ. I am motivated not to partake of any kind of carnal, fleshly behavior, not for self-preservation, but because I love Jesus. I'm in relationship with Him. I want to please Him. I've been purchased by His blood and I want to be a pleasing child to Him and a representation of Jesus to this world. And so our motivation to to allow this to take root, truly take root and control in our lives is because we love Jesus and we want Him to be glorified in our lives. That concludes all nine fruit of the Spirit. Now let me conclude the series. Let me conclude the series. If you recall... At the end of verse 23, Paul says this. After self-control, he says, Against such there is no law. If you're familiar with the book of Galatians, the law of the Old Testament is dealt with continuously because the Galatians, they thought they were going to be justified by the works of the law. And Paul was trying to say, no, you're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone by grace alone. And, and, and they want it to be justified by the law. He says, but against such there is no law. I love what F.B. Meyer says about this. That Christ has freed us from the law as a means of salvation does not free us from moral restraint, but brings us under the constraint of a higher law, the law of love. We do not keep this law... To be saved. But being saved, we keep it out of love toward Christ. The power of the new life is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Unite yourself with His life that you find rising up within you. Live in the Spirit. A child was much disappointed because when she took a cup full of water out of the blue lake, it did not look blue in the cup. So her teacher told her to throw the cup into the midst of the lake and leave it there. As we live and walk in the Spirit, that is where we are safe. That is where we are safe. And the very last verse of of this portion of chapter 5, verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. It was apparent that the Galatians, they were seeking their own righteousness by committing the works of the law. And in their consecration and keeping the law, they had become competitive with one another in their spiritual life and they were trying to outdo each other by the works of the law and their own works of righteousness. And so he told them, Don't become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. I have five more minutes. Conceited. Don't be vainglorious. Don't be prideful. Don't be full of yourself. Don't have a high opinion of your own righteousness. Because if you do, you will provoke others to conform to what you think is the form of righteousness represented in your own life. Provoke means to challenge to a contest. And if I consider myself to be the measure of spirituality, then I will provoke others to conform to myself. I will challenge others to compete with my own righteousness. I will provoke others and say, oh, you're not conforming to me. You're not conforming to my righteousness and me keeping the works of the law. And then those who are weak, And those who feel spiritually inferior and those who have been deceived to think that this other individual is is the form of righteousness that I should seek, they become to feel inferior and then they become envious of the supposed righteousness of the individual. And this is when you detach yourself from the law of Christ, which is the law of love. But the true measure of spirituality, the true measure of spiritual maturity, Spirituality, or to be spiritual means the one, the definition is this, to be spiritual. It is the one who is filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And Paul told the Corinthians, I can't speak to you as, as spiritual people. I can only speak to you as carnal. You're, you're saints. You're saved. You're redeemed. You're justified. But you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to have full control in your lives as He intends to. And the true... Spiritually mature person, the person who is spiritual is the one who is, control, who is filled and controlled by the Spirit of God. And the measure, the measure, the example of spirituality put before us, it is Christ. It is Christ's likeness. It is Him. He's the measure because He was perfect. And we live within faith in Christ Jesus. Christ's likeness is the measure, and it is represented in the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. I close with this last thing. Once more, F.B. Meyer says this, The Holy Spirit brings influence to bear, which act upon the germs of sin as a disinfectant upon the germs of disease. How relevant to the pandemic that we face here today. We're very much familiar with an disinfectant, aren't we? If we yield ourselves to these influences and are filled with the Spirit of Jesus, we shall be delivered from the self-life. And that's what this is. It's deliverance from myself, which the Apostle describes as the flesh. As Jesus is more and more formed in us, the new flower and fruitage of the risen life will appear while the corrupt works of the flesh will shrink and drop away. That's a promise we have from God. So my final exhortation at the conclusion of this series is the same thing that Paul exhorted to the Galatians in Galatians 5.25. If you live in the Spirit, that is, if you have been saved by faith in Christ, that's living in the Spirit and not under the letter of the law which kills, but if you're living in the Spirit, then that should manifest by this. Let us also walk. In the Spirit. Let the fruit of the Spirit flourish in your life as you continually yield to the influence and the mastery of the Spirit upon you so that you can glorify God and reap all the benefits He wants to pour into your life. As we live and walk in the Spirit, we are safe.